Thank you, guys. Let's give our worship team a hand tonight. Thank you, guys, for your service. We've got great leadership. When our lead worship pastor is under the weather, they just snap into action right away and do a great job. Thank you for your leadership. Well, tonight we are concluding our series that we've been in the last uh, three weeks. This is our fourth and final week on walking in the Spirit. We've learned much about the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And if what we've learned about the Holy Spirit doesn't affect the way we live, then this has just been a colossal waste of time. I hope that this hasn't been a waste of your time or our time together, and, and I believe that when we see how this can and does affect our life, we can begin to see how this is valuable for us to understand who the Holy Spirit is, what He does, and the impact a Spirit-filled life has. When we learn to practice the presence of God in our day-to-day living, then we will begin to see how He has brought change into our life and the lives of those around us. You see, when we see the impact of a Spirit-filled life, We can begin to check and not only see the fruit of the Spirit in our life that we talked about last week, but we can begin to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. In your outline there, you see uh, John chapter 14, verse 12. It's implied in this study of what is the impact of the Spirit-filled life. It's implied that there's some kind of dynamic power that is enabling us to live a unique Christian life. Here's what Jesus says when he prompts us in John chapter 14 verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Jesus did some pretty amazing things while he walked on earth. He spit into mud and put it on a guy's eyes and he saw, he could see again. He touched a lame man's leg and he could walk. He healed leprosy. He forgave sin. He gave of himself and died on a cross for us. Jesus did some pretty amazing things, and these are his words to us. I I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. We read on. Now get this. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That's what I would call impact living, when we can begin to do things collectively as the body of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as even greater than what Jesus has done here on earth. The key insight to this happens in the last phrase. It says, because I am going to the Father. You see, Jesus left the earth, and it's not until he leaves that his spirit can come. When you and I give room in our life for the Holy Spirit to not just reside in our life, but to be president of our life, to be Lord of our life, there is a powerful thing that begins to happen. We can begin to see the work of God doing great and mighty things in us. See, everyone wants to be able to overcome the obstacles in their life. But God's powerful presence, that's what makes the difference. So to answer this question, we've got to look at some aspects of a Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled life. Here's some of the particulars of God's power. If we're going to ask the question that says, what is the impact of a Spirit-filled life? What, what would that look like if I'm living 
a spirit-filled life, how would that actually change how I live? Let's look at Luke 24, 49. Either turn with me there or look in your outline at Luke 24, 49. It says this, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I see there's a couple characteristics there in this passage that we need to see some particulars of God's power. If we're going to see it at work in our life, one, it's an objective power. If you're taking notes, jot that down. It's an objective power. In other words, this power originates somewhere outside of ourself. It's not coming from within. It's coming objectively from outside of us. Now, there's a popular notion in our culture today that power can be found from within ourself. This is a constant theme in a New Age teaching in a a spiritual self-help understanding. Secular humanism is filled with this idea that it's something in you that you muster up your own strength. I believe in me. I believe that I can do it. And and there is power if I just have positive thinking in myself. Our culture is inundated with teachings of self-rationalization, self-help, self-improvement. That's not to say that you can't work on yourself, but this spirit-filled life, this power for the Christian life does not come from within. That's the message of our, our contemporary culture that would give us all kinds of themes coming from different ways. The, even in our fiction, we begin to see these themes and philosophies woven into it. The popular series Harry Potter would, would teach something similar, that there's some kind of magical power within that if I can unleash it or tap into this magical power inside of me that I can do amazing things. Now, notably, the author is dealing with a, a fictitious character, but this philosophy is of a dangerous one. It goes more than just in fiction. It becomes how we begin to live our life. If, if I could just be the best me that I could be, that's where strength is. If I could unlock who I really am inside. Friend, if you and I understand who we really are in and of ourselves, the picture doesn't get any better. It gets worse. We are a broken and flawed people. The power that we live the Christian life cannot come from within ourselves. We can look at another work of fiction that gives another philosophy of a power on high. C.S. Lewis's book, Chronicles of Narnia, talks about this power that comes from on high, uh, the Aslan, the Christological figure of this God, this power that is not safe, but is so good. This is a, a better description of an understanding of the power we see in God, the Holy Spirit, in our life. He resides in us, but don't confuse when we talk about the power of God in us, meaning anything of ourself that gives us the power to do great things. It's God, this objective power from on high. If you're taking notes, write this in. It's a source not from within, but from on high. It's not the result of our human effort. It's a gift. It's a gift from an all-powerful God. Therefore, this all-powerful God is not limited, and so the power He gives us is not limited to ourself. There are some who argue that only the the morally weak seek power from outside themselves. 
there's this idea that if you need help, if you need some power outside of yourself, then, then you're just weak. It's interesting to me that these very people who claim this position, that I don't need anybody, I don't need anything, I, I just am a self-reliant, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, I don't need anything or anybody else, they still use all kinds of crutches in their life. Most of them will drive a car. Most of them will use a computer. Most of them will use a telephone. They are dependent on all kinds of things in their life that they subject themselves to because they cannot do everything that they wanted to do, and this doesn't cause a problem for them. Now, for example, uh, this last summer, uh, my family and I took a vacation to Michigan. We uh, could have gotten there by foot, I guess. We could have walked to Indian Lake, but we said, why? We have a van. Let's get in the van and let's drive and let's, let's get there. And, and, and in essence, there's so many times when we are taught by culture to say, you don't need anything or anyone else, but yet we are so dependent upon other people's approval. We are so dependent upon technology. We are so dependent upon what the market says. We are so dependent on popular opinion that we forget that we are already placing our hope in something outside of ourselves. The Holy Spirit who we depend on, who is a power outside of us, from on high, who dwells in us. This is not weak. This is the only logical thing to do. Some people live their life as they are going to Michigan. They just get out and try to walk their way there in their own strength. But for me, I'm going to tap into the power that's greater than my feet. I'm just going to get in the van and go. I'm not going to try to do this Christian life thing in my own strength. And the illustration breaks down because there is some ability for me to walk. I guess in time I would get there, and I guess in time I would do just as good as the van would do. But but in the reality in our spiritual life, you have no capability of doing what God has called you to do. You have no ability to love like we talked about this morning in your own strength the way God loves. We need this source from on high in our life. When trials overwhelm you, You can grit your teeth. You can say, I've got to grin and bear it. You can be crushed under the weight of it all, or you can call on God and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, and His grace and strength can be evident in your life. You can trust Him to turn those trials into a place of victory where God brings good and brings glory to Himself. It's really our choice. Will we allow Him to work in us, or will we try to do it in our own strength? Am I going to say I can prove it to myself and prove it to others that, that I'm a good enough Christian, I'm a strong enough person? And, and friends, we often understand well that we cannot save ourselves, uh, that I cannot forgive my own sin, but we live our life as Christians acting as if we can be holy in and of ourselves. I can have the power of God in my life by what I manipulate and what I do. Just as much as you cannot save yourself, you cannot sanctify yourself. Just as much as you cannot forgive yourself of your sins, you cannot have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life through your own efforts or through your own doing. This has to come from on high. We we see here that it's not only a power from on high, but another particular of God's power. It's a spiritual power. It's a spiritual power. In the verse previous to this one we read, Jesus refers to the promise of the Father, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
Since this power is from the Holy Spirit, it stands to reason that it is a spiritual power and it's under His control. Write this in. Its nature is not to be in control, but to be under the Spirit's control. God's power, it's it's not to be understood that we are in control and we channel His power and we direct His power wherever we see fit, like water through a fire hose, and I just choose to, to wield it wherever I want to. No, we are under His control. This is important to understand what the effect of a spirit-filled life should look like around us. Before they were filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus' own disciples had trouble grasping this distinction. For example, John wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans for their criticism. Have you ever felt tempted to pray or have you ever been vulnerable in a time and you just prayed the wrath of God down on somebody around you? I'm thankful that God hasn't answered all my prayers. It's a good thing he doesn't give me everything I want, because sometimes the things that I think I want is exactly what I don't need. The disciples missed this. Before Pentecost, they had example after example where they tried to do things or wanted God's power to go wherever they wanted it to go. They wanted to wield God's power, not be under the control of God's power. Peter sought to defend his master with the sword. I love the Apostle Peter. He's the guy that could get both feet jammed in his mouth and wonder why he couldn't talk and why he couldn't walk. He would get thinking so fast and he would be a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And and he would just run ahead of what his brain would allow him to think through. He wanted to help God out and, and help Jesus out by taking care of a situation in his own strength. But yet, 40 days Later, Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit begins to, begins to move in their life and they begin to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. They begin to love and they begin to forgive in ways that they cannot do in their own strength. They overcome evil with good and they love people with the love of the cross. They believe that mercy is stronger than might. Love is stronger than the law. Offering forgiveness is stronger than holding a grudge, and faith is stronger than fear. I believe this is why they were able to change their world for Christ. Not only did they rely on the power from on high, they understood the nature of that power. They didn't try to fight a spiritual battle in their own strength. And I think, if we're honest, the reason some of us are so discouraged is, is we get this in our head, but we are fighting a spiritual battle with our physical strength. You come to the end of your day, the end of your week, and you are completely sapped. I don't mean you're just tired physically, but spiritually, emotionally, you are wiped out. Some of us are so burnt and crusty and dry and and so stale spiritually because we've been trying to fight a spiritual battle with our own fleshly strength. What does it look like to have a life led and controlled by the Holy Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to see the power of God in our life? It's to understand that we are under the control of the Spirit, not trying to control the Spirit in us. So what is the purpose of God's power? Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We consider the purpose for the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Acts 1.8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now notice first that this is 
a power. What is it a power for? It's a power to live victoriously. Jot that down. A power to live victoriously. It's not a power to show off. It's not a power to get what you want. It's, it's not a power to look good in front of people. It's not a power to just have on safety reserves somewhere. It's a power to live a victorious life. From the context in verse 4, Jesus instructs his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem. Now, I would think it would be better for them to leave Jerusalem after all that pressure and tension and, and just to get out of there and go run to the hills and hide and retreat. But again, it's good that I'm not God and God is God because he knew better. There's a reason for his command, I believe, and this is definitely not the only reason, but I think it's a partial reason. See, the city can be a congested place, a place where problems are compounded and where pressures come very strong. And Jesus is saying, in the midst of these compound pressures and tensions here in the city, I want you to stay and see my power at work right at home. See, God is saying that it's a provision, and my provision is sufficient for life's toughest challenges. There's no situation too hard. There's no problem too difficult. The Holy Spirit can handle that. If you can trust him to give you victory in in the big city, in the places that have a lot of challenges, then you can trust him in every area of your life. Also notice that he commands them not just to, to wait in any city, but he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Now what did Jerusalem symbolize for them? Now think about this. Why was it there? It's there that Jesus had been crucified. It's there where Jesus suffered. It's there where... It appeared to be the greatest place of Jesus' defeat and their defeat. But I believe Jesus wanted to demonstrate to his disciples that he could conquer even Jerusalem, the place that appeared to have all kinds of bad political PR for them, the place where they were persecuted, the place where death happened. Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave, and now the Spirit's power is going to move among Jerusalem. It's there that... He was resurrected, and they can remember the same power that raised Christ from the dead now empowered them to carry out the Great Commission. See, the Spirit-filled life, it is not free from stress. It's not free from problems. It's not free from even temporary defeat. But as power, it is tailor-made for times just like they were facing. It's there that His power can help them Be ready to witness to the world. That leads us to the other purpose of of his power. It's not only to live victoriously in the face of challenges and, and struggles that they can have victory there, but it's to have power to witness effectively. The only thing that could get a group of disciples who feared for their very lives, they're hiding behind closed doors, the only thing that could motivate them to get their message out into the streets was the power of the Holy Spirit. In the American church today, I believe that too often the pictures of the disciples behind the closed doors and fear is a pretty good picture of us. We have tremendous potential and and we have all kinds of opportunity, but we lack the power and therefore our witness is not effective. I've said it before and, and you're going to hear it again and again. I do not believe the reason we see generations leaving the church is because we're not cool enough. We're not trendy enough. We don't have enough smoke and lights and mirrors and, and we're not hip enough. And I don't want to be, 
you know, outdated for the sake of out, being outdated. Now, there's a place and time to talk about that, but that's not what brings people to church. Well, we could get trendy and we could get cool and we could add all kinds of facade to things, but, but that is not why people leave church. I believe in generations that are now present, they're asking, is this church thing do anything for you? It may be out of a selfish thought, what can I get out of it? But, but really, a watching world is looking at us and saying, is there any difference in your life compared to the lives of people who don't go to church? No, no, we know here tonight that going to church doesn't do anything for you in and of itself. Just going to a place or, or something doesn't change you, but when we are spirit-filled believers and we gather together and, and we worship God together and He moves in our midst and we begin to live and walk in the Spirit, there should be a change in our life. And a watching world should say, what in the world do you have? Maybe it's time for us to cry out and repent to God and say, God, we don't need cooler churches. We don't need more culturally in touch churches. We need more churches that are under the control of your spirit. We need more churches that surrender themselves to what you want to do in their life and in turn what you want to do in their city. You see, our obedience has a direct effect on us as individuals. Our disobedience has a direct effect on us as individuals, but we often think it stops there. If I'm, if I'm obedient, then I receive the blessing and favor of God. If I'm disobedient, I, I pay the consequences of being disobedient. But it has great ramifications on all those around you. I, I, no, no, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that because of your disobedience, somebody else can't get to know Jesus. But what I'm saying is, you were designed to be a blessing for someone else. And when you or I are not obedient to the Father, when we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work through us, we are denying them the blessing of the Jesus in us. What would it look like if we all collectively walked in the power of the Holy Spirit? We would have an, a witness that would be effective. Well, how will we know when we see a witness that is effective? We'll begin to see people identifying Jesus in us. They won't say, you are perfect. No. We're going to get to that in a minute. They won't say, you are just so talented. No. They'll say, I, I, I see something in you that I don't have in me. And if John 3.30 is true in our life, that He, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease, then we can take great pride in understanding that what you see in me isn't me at all, and let me tell you how you can have this too. But the danger of the church is when we begin to take credit for what Jesus has done in us, and we begin to get all excited about ourselves. Well, you too could dress like me. You too could talk like me. You too could think like me. You too could be as just... Amazing as me. And we stop referring to the God in us. We start referring to what we are proud that he has transformed in us. Now hear me, church, because this is a, a fine line, but it's a dangerous line. We want to be an effective witness and tell of what Jesus has done in our life. But if we are lifting up ourselves, if we are so impressed and amazed at who we are, if we are so disgusted by well, how the world is and so disgusted of how they live and we cannot believe how... Stinky and horrible they are, those heathens. I am not one. Of course you'd want to be like me. Then a watching world says, I don't need one more person 
to tell me what maybe I don't admit to, what I already know is inside of me. Death. But when they begin to see in us the love of Jesus Christ that loves them enough, tender at times, tough often, to bring the truth, there is an effective witness. This doesn't happen by you getting yourself so clean and squeaky perfect. It doesn't happen by you getting all your ducks in a row. It happens by allowing the Holy Spirit to move in us. Remember in Luke 15 when the prodigal son came back to the, to the father and, and he, he realized that he had squandered the wealth. He realized that he was in trouble and he stood there eating with the pigs and he said, even my father's hired hands eat better than this. And, and, and surely if I could come home, I'm not worthy to be his son, but maybe, maybe I could, I could earn my way to be a servant. And so he begins to rehearse his prayer, and, and he's on his way back to his father, and he, he's rehearsing it. Father, I, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and, and, and I want you to forgive me, and I'm not worthy to be called your son, but maybe I can be worthy to be called your servant. And the father wraps his arms around him and brings him in as a son and puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe on him, kills the fatted calf, and says, Welcome home. See, church, too many times we have convinced ourselves, because I can't earn my salvation, my forgiveness, I'm going to earn my holiness. I'm going to earn the Spirit's power. And we begin to rehearse and we begin to tell God, and and God, I don't feel worthy or I I, I don't see victory in my life, so I'm going to work harder. And, And the Father wants to say, would you just stop? Would you surrender and let me wrap my arms around you? Would, you? would you see that in your weakest places, I want to be the strength in your life, and that is the power of the witness I want to do in you and in the community of believers? Jot this down. Its purpose, the power of God, is to embolden the most fearful disciple. It's to embolden the most fearful disciple. Now these disciples hid behind doors and and, and it wasn't until they were filled with the Holy Spirit that they went out and had the, the courage, the boldness to proclaim to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Many of us hide behind a door of fear today in the church. The world is a scary place today, especially after 9-11. We have all kinds of checks and fears in our heart about security and the things around us. And, and I think uh, we are so much in fear that we justify staying in our safe place spiritually. And our religious bubble, surrounded by a secular world, we choose to stay in close and We are fearful and we only want to stick with our Christian friends because it's so scary and dangerous out there. We never leave the doors of our religious bubble out of fear. Some of us, we hide behind the doors of doubt because we have never really had a life-changing encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit. We doubt the the power of the Spirit in our life. And so when we speak, there is no anointing. When we share, there is no conviction. When when we begin to talk about Jesus, there's no passion in our life because we've not seen the power of the Holy Spirit in our life and we hide behind the door of doubt. We take all of our devotional time trying to debunk somebody else's claim for Christ. Friend, there are false teachers out there and there is stuff that we shouldn't engage in. But don't waste your life charting all the things that aren't good that someone else says. Just dive into the Word of God and start looking at the truth. 
It aggravates me how much time we waste and energy on blogs and all kinds of stuff about talking about someone else's faults. There's a place for that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't bring correction. Well, we got enough truth in the book. Let's read the book, and let's begin to see the power of God. And we let our doubt be a door we hide behind. Well, I'm not sure that God would do that. I've never seen that happen before. And this is, just start going after the authentic God. We don't have to drum up the move of the Holy Spirit. If you think, well, I'm a little fearful that if the Spirit moves, some things may get crazy. You know what? If it's not of God, it doesn't smell like God, we're going to say, whoops, that's not what we want. Give each other grace and say, let's not go there. But it's of God. If it's of God, then let's, let's go after that. Not hide behind the door of doubt. Well, I don't know if God can heal anymore. I don't know if God can forgive me. I don't know if God can speak to me anymore. I don't know if God can really do those things. You know what? It's okay to have honest doubts, but don't hide behind that door. It will kill the witness. Have a fresh encounter from the Holy Spirit. How? Well, you have two things to do. And in and of themselves, they do, they're, they're useless. But there's two things that unlock the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. One, you surrender to Him. Two, you obey Him. It's simple. I, I surrender. Tell me what you want. He tells you, you do it. Often when we say, I don't hear God speak to me, it's because we haven't obeyed what He's already told us. Time and time again, I'll hear a friend, they'll say, you know what, I've been seeking God. He doesn't give me any direction in my life on this job. And as I get to know them, and I begin to talk to them, I find out earlier in their life, God was speaking to them about a secret sin, and they're not obeying in that area. Why would God tell them about a next area of wisdom when they haven't been obedient in the first thing that God told them? Now, they don't need to tell me that. I don't need to know all your dirty laundry in your life. But when I begin to obey what he's already told me, he begins to tell me new things. Don't hide behind the door of doubt. Allow him to take his power and his spirit and move you outside that door. Another door is still the door we hide behind and compromise. This is, it's not, I'm not fearful. I'm not in doubt. In fact, I have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, but, but I'm not willing to let go of that one last thing. You know, uh, there's sometimes some confusion in our tribe, I think, that it doesn't need to be there about what sanctification is or the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Is, is it a, a specific moment in time? Is it a crisis moment? Or is it a, a lifelong journey? And, and, and don't, don't waste any breath arguing. You know what the, the, the Bible answer is? Yes. Yes. No, Pastor, I want you to take a side. Is it a specific moment in time when I am filled with the Holy Spirit and I am sanctified holy? Or is it a lifelong process? Yes. There is a moment when I cross the line into the room of obedience. But I keep walking in. And I keep moving. When He shows me new area of light, I move in new areas of obedience. But we begin to compromise. See, I can surrender my life. When I surrendered my life as a 14-year-old, and I said, Oh God, I don't want to be a pastor. They're nerdy. I don't like pastors. I've seen the underbelly of church. How people talk about each other, and, and, and I've seen what how anything but being a pastor. What I really was saying was, let me be a professional soccer player. I didn't have the talent or the drive to do so, but that was what was in my heart. But I surrendered at that moment. I said, oh God, I'd rather be miserable for you and be a pastor. I did tell them it was only a youth pastor. I'd never be a senior pastor because those guys are too weird. <laughs> oh God, I'll surrender to you and I'll, I'll, I'll even be a pastor. I'd rather be miserable for you than then be happy as a soccer player, but be obedient to you. 
But then God began to change my heart, and, and I can't imagine doing anything else but pastoring. And, and I, it, it's amazing, but something happened when I got married. There was another level of surrender. I didn't have a wife before that I needed to surrender. And when I had a daughter, I didn't have a daughter to surrender. And, and in each stage of life, talk to those who mentor you, talk to those who have gone ahead of you. There is a new stage to surrender over and over again. And so compromise can creep in at every point. Those of us who have lived a life led and controlled by the Holy Spirit, your days of flame from compromise are not over. You could walk out of here tonight, you could have come in, filled with the Holy Spirit, you could walk out of here and tomorrow begin compromising like crazy. I don't want you to be fearful, it's not like somewhere between pouring the milk and the milk coming out and hitting the Rice Krispies, you do something and then you're separated from God and all that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to get you to live in fear. You'll know it, you're shaking your fist at God saying I don't want to, but friend, we don't want to hide behind the door of compromise, the door of fear, the door of compromise, or the door of doubt. The purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit is to embolden the most fearful disciple, the most doubting disciple, the most compromising disciple. Being a bold witness for God has less to do with your personality and your skills. It has everything to do with your commitment and passion for God. We need to hear that again. Being a bold witness has less to do with your personality. Well, pastor, I'm, I'm kind of a quiet person. Good. I don't see how I can be bold. Really? This has nothing to do with your personality. Well, I don't have the gifts of an evangelist. I don't have the gifts of a communicator. Well, good. That has nothing to do with you being a bold witness. It has everything to do with your commitment to God. And it has everything to do with your passion for God. A passion for God is the one thing that can break down the door of fear. It can break down the door of doubt. It can break down the door of compromise. Well, where does a passion come from? I I, want to be passionate, but I'm not. Let go and let God stir something up in you. And you begin to follow the stirring of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not, it doesn't have to be mystical. It doesn't have to be some kind of loosey-goosey thing that you can't quite get your arms around. It's two, surrender and obey. Well, what does he want me to do? Just ask him tonight. He will tell you. If he didn't tell you tonight, pray and ask him tomorrow. He will tell you when you are obedient, the the faster you obey, the faster he speaks. The more instant you are, the more complete you are in your obedience, the more complete he is in giving you more instruction. And I want to caution you. Rarely does God care about your timeline of your requests. Now, I don't like this about God. I've asked him to stop doing this, but he, didn't, he, didn't, he knows better than me and didn't want to cooperate with that. So sometimes we feel like God is not speaking to us. What we're really saying is, God, I've only got four weeks left till the, the deadline's coming. And you're not saying anything. God, now it's three. Now we've wasted time talking and there's only one week left. God, it's tomorrow and you've not spoken. God, the deadline passed and I knew you wouldn't speak. And two weeks later we find out that God was working behind the scenes. And we didn't need to do anything yet. But when we begin to trust the Holy Spirit and say, I'm going to surrender and I'm going to obey, He will speak. The more instant we obey, the quicker He will speak. The Spirit-filled life, it's not a position, but it's a passion. Do you catch this? This is not some kind of column that you're in, in, in heaven's book of saved and sanctified. 
It's not a theological stance that you take and you say, you know what, I, I am a sanctified believer and this is my Wesleyan Arminian position and I, I'm here in a position. It's not my even act of will. It is more of my passion for God. It's a reckless abandon. I will be obedient even unto death. It's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My God will save me. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to serve him. It's a passion for God. And friends, that gives us a witness to the world. We long for God to smooth out our path and take away the challenges. But what is the best witness is when we begin to allow God to work through the challenges of our life. And the people watching us say, I don't know how you made it through that illness. I don't know how you made it through that family challenge. I don't know how you made it through that layoff. I don't know how you made it through blank. And it's places where they can see God in our life. The Spirit-filled life, it's not a position, but it's a passion. The next chapter, we read about 3,000 who were added to their number that day in Acts 2, 41. The impact of a Spirit-filled group of people who are passionate for Jesus produces supernatural results. Are you hungry for supernatural results in our church community? It's okay to say no. You may shock someone around you, but because I, I don't, I'm not sure that all of us really want supernatural results. I think some of us are okay. I just don't rock the boat. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. I, I don't want that. I, I love you, and I love your opinion and your heart, and I want you to be honest. This is a place to always be honest. I want to see a supernatural result, but it doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by stirring up, mustering up some kind of goofy gopher dust thing. It comes by being led and controlled by the Holy Spirit, and our collective obedience emboldens our witness. It's not how organized we are in going out to Fort Wayne and finding the right zip codes and the right houses and and the right strategy to convince them that God is cool. You know what makes people think God is cool? When God tells them himself that he loves them. And he uses us to do it. You know what tells people that God is cool? When they begin to see that you and I would be willing to be inconvenienced in our day to give them an opportunity to see Jesus in us. I want to see a supernatural work where there was 3,000 added to their number in one day because they were such great preachers. Wrong. Because they were so organized. Wrong. Because they had all the curriculum so well done as Sunday school teachers and they had it down and they were so theologically correct. Wrong. Because they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a power from on high. It wasn't a power that came from within themselves. It was a spiritual power. They were led under the control of the power of the Spirit. They didn't manipulate and wield the power of the Spirit for their own gain. Oh, that's something to get excited about. If you're not excited, then have someone help you because you're sick. You need to take some medicine. It's okay. I'm glad you're here. But just know. Now here's some warnings before we're done. We need to be aware of some perversion of God's power. We wouldn't be faithful to talk about this subject if we didn't talk about perverting the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. In Acts chapter 8, there's an interesting story. We see a man named Simon who was working magic. He was a part of the occult. He made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ. However, he still had an infatuation with a sign and wonder. Don't mistake that just because something's supernatural doesn't mean it's of God. 
You just look at the uh, TV listings and find out how popular the supernatural is. There's all kinds of supernatural things, but friends, we want to be a part of the supernatural that's given from God. Acts, we see here in Acts 8, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money, you have no part or share in this ministry. Because your heart is not right before God, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. See, Simon is a, is a classic example of a carnal Christian. It's a classic example of somebody who is not pure in their heart and their motives. We can pervert God's power and the power of the Holy Spirit if we allow ourselves to stay carnal. It's that bent towards evil. And I want to try to wield God's power instead of being underneath the control of God's power. In this verse, I see two specific ways that this happens. First, it comes from religious ritual. Simon observed that the Holy Spirit was received by the laying on of hands and, and interpreted that this ritual, this religious act, this specific thing to do, could be manipulated as some kind of magic formula. Be weary of any kind of teacher or preacher or anything that would say, if you come up here and you do this formula and I touch you this way, then you have this power and you can go out and do it. Be weary of anybody who would tell you if you pay nineteen ninety five and then I can bottle it up and give you the power of God and you can take it out. And I'm not trying to make fun of any one person. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. The power of God can be manipulated. It can be perverted. And one key area is in religious ritual. We look at that and we go, yeah, that is bad. Those bad televangelists who want you to send in and have them pray over your hanky and send it back for $100 pledge or something. But church, I think that extends to us too in our own religious ritual that we feel like if we can keep these things in order, we keep the power of God moving. We can sing three hymns, a prayer, an offering, and a good sermon, and then the power of God needs to be there. Well, now, Pastor, I don't like that. Go back to the other thing. The religious ritual of our life is I'm going to wake up and I'm going to read the Bible for 20 minutes. I'm going to pray for 20 minutes. I'm going to take these spiritual pills, but I'm not going to allow God to really press in any area new in my life. And I'm just going to keep up this ritual over and over again, and then I'm going to manipulate God's power in my life. Any time when I allow an outward pattern to determine where I am with God, it could potentially lead me astray. See, God deals with the internal motive and purity of heart. The religion deals with the external things. And I'm not saying we should look at any external thing, but when we see the perversion of the power of God come is when someone is overly obsessed with the external. Allow God to tell you this time, maybe you don't hit the rock with the stick. Maybe you do something else. Nope. I hit the rock with the stick. Water came out last time. I'm doing it again, Moses said. Fine. There's going to be a price to be paid for that. 
You're not going to move in all the obedience that I have for you. Here's another way. Well, before we get to that, let's hit this. Tradition tries to manage God's power. Here's why this religious ritual is so dangerous. It perverts God's power. It's when we try to manage God's power. This is where we say, I want a move of the Holy Spirit, but it needs to look like what I'm used to. I want a move of the Holy Spirit, but it needs to happen on Wednesday or Sunday morning or Sunday night. I don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit moving on Friday. I don't know what the the Holy Spirit would do on Thursday. I don't know that I really want that. We don't really want an outbreak of the Holy Spirit in Sunday school class because we're teaching there. We're not, I don't understand that. Friends, anytime we try to manage God's power, we're in danger of perverting the power of God. And whether it's on the gross end of trying to, to profit off of it or if it's on the other end of trying to manage it, we see here that the, the, the Scripture is telling us that this is when we are trying to control God for our own selfish gain or for our own comfort. Another way we see this is for personal gain. This was the second one. Simon's motive was for personal gain. It's obvious that Simon was motivated by this self-centered interest. He tries to buy the power of God. But Peter tries, he sees right through this, and he says, you're doing this for personal gain, and then write this next one down. He says, pride is in you. Pride tries to manipulate God's power. Either I'm trying to manage God's power, or because of my desire for personal gain, my pride tries to manipulate God's power. I want the power of God so you think better of me. I want the power of God so I could advance. Here's the greatest problem with the health and wealth gospel. Not only is it false, not only does it lead people astray, and if that phrase is new to you, here's the problem with a preaching that says God wants every single person to have a bunch of zeros in their bank account. If you love Jesus and you do what he says, he will give you money all the time, over and over. Not only is that dangerous because it's not true, but, but here's the big problem with it. It's for your own selfish gain. I will obey God because he makes me rich. I will obey God because I get every promotion I want. I will obey God because, didn't that sound a lot like a different kind of love other than agape this morning? I love you if, eros, (laughs) phileo, I love you because, I love you if you give me money, I love you because you give me a promotion. Friends, this is not at all the attitude of Jesus. And we can begin to pervert God's power when we don't surrender to him. So whenever we see pride trying to manipulate God's power, well, how does that happen in our life? We begin to seek the power of the Holy Spirit when pride is evident in our life in moments that's very public, but not in moments when it's really private. God, I'm going to be praying in Sunday school class this week. Would you anoint me so my prayer sounds good? I mean, nobody would say that, but maybe think that. God, I'm going to be talking to my friend who's at the hospital, and, and I want to say the right things. Would you, would you give me your power to speak to them? Because I, I really want to be viewed as a, as a great Christian to help them out. Even pride of God. I really, 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 really need your wisdom now because this is a major decision. But when it's something that's not a major decision, when it's something that's secret, when it's something on Saturday morning when no one else is around, how much am I seeking God's anointing? If I only pray for God's anointing when I'm on this platform, then I don't want God's anointing in my life. I want it just so you think something's good in my life. What is the platform of your life? Where are the places that's visible? We don't want pride to be something that causes us to pervert God's power. Let's finally look at the place of God's power. 
The place of power might come to surprise some of us. Our image-conscious culture tells us if, if you want to be powerful, you've got to look powerful. The things we've been taught. Dress for the job that you want. Begin to operate as if you had the position that you want to have. Contrast this with worldview with what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. The Apostle Paul reminds us that the place of power is best seen, write this in, through my weakness. This power of God that we're talking about, friends, it's going to shine through not when you have everything all together. It's going to shine through in your moments of weakness. We need to let that soak in for a moment. How does the world around us package power? They package power with weapons of mass destruction. They package power with spectacular demonstrations of authority. But God chooses jars of clay. He chooses cracked pots. Why? To show that his all-surpassing power has nothing to do with the vessel that it is in. You see, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't exempt you from human imperfections. It doesn't exempt you from temptation. In fact, you become a conduit for God to do his most powerful work in the areas of your greatest weakness. Paul experienced this truth personally. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7-9. To keep me from becoming conceited, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So listen to this testimony in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Friend, that's great news for somebody here today. That is great encouragement for someone here today. Somebody's here saying, you know what? I, I want to live a life led and controlled by the Holy Spirit. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to have the power of God in my life, but I just never seem to be able to have it all together. Great! You're on the edge of something amazing. Surrender and obey. Because in that area where you feel like you just aren't good enough, God's going to be good enough. It will be hard, probably. You will have challenges, definitely. People will sometimes come against you, often. But when you surrender and you obey, His power will be so strong in your life. This final thought, and I'm through. The place where I feel the weakest is where God does His most powerful work. God gets the greater glory when a watching world see His power work through my weakness not my strength. That's why Paul's testimony is said as it is, and that's why God wants to do that in his people right here at Grace Point tonight. I close by asking you, how is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? We've talked about who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, the fruit of the Spirit that evidence of the fullness of the Spirit in our life. What changes? So what? What, what happens when, when I'm living a life led and controlled by the Holy Spirit? Remember we just talked about it tonight. You'll have a victorious life, 
Not an easy life, not a perfect life, but you'll have victory and you'll have a powerful witness. You don't have victory, you don't have a powerful witness, you're not living the way God wants you to experience life. As we close tonight, I want to just invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. And a crowd that's indicative of who's here tonight, no doubt, probably few of you, this is the first time you've heard most of this message. There's a handful of you that have given this message in class and in forms just like this yourself. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to ask God to reveal in your heart how you're doing on those two things that are your responsibility. God, am am I still sold out and surrendered to you? Have I yielded to you? Do I let you take the the steering wheel of my life, or am I keeping you in the trunk? Am I just letting you be in the passenger seat? Am I letting you just kind of be a part somewhat, but I'm really in control? Those of us who have surrendered our life to him years ago, how are you doing on still letting him be in control? Maybe there's new areas of your life that weren't existent because of a new stage of life, and maybe God is, is challenging you to, to surrender that again to him. This new area to him. Maybe there's others of us that's it's not as much of a thumb on our back on surrender as, as it is on obedience. God, I gave you my fear, but I'm still trying to manage my fear. I'm not being obedient and trusting. God, I have given you my worry, but I've relabeled it concern, and I'm not really being obedient because I'm trying to help you out. God, I've given you that area of secret disobedience in my life. And I'm trying to manage it with my own willpower to make you proud of me of how hard I'm working. But maybe you just want me to be obedient and letting you have control again. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and there is no formula of a hocus-pocus thing. You do these three things, and then woof, the power of God is in your life. But we see a pattern and we see evidence of those who have gone before us. And we see surrender. We see obedience. And we see the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit who is already in every believer filling us from our toes to our head. As I pray, I want to encourage you to pray and not just listen to me. Father God, We thank you for how you have reminded us of the truth about who your spirit is. What your spirit does. The evidence of your spirit in our life and and the effect of a spirit-filled life in, in the world around us. Lord, we've talked about it enough and... And we want to zero in, just you and us right now. Father, I pray in my life that you will bring conviction to my heart. If there's any area where I have taken it off the altar of surrender, back in my own hands, show me. I want to give that to you right now. I pray you'll do that for my friends. Let it be a neon sign flashing in their mind that they can't get away from it. 
God, we know that when you speak, you're specific and you're direct. When, when Satan is trying to bring temptation in our mind, he's vague and he is destructive. You are specific and you're always constructive. So, Lord, right now I pray that the specific, constructive conviction that you bring will, will be received as your spirit talking to us. And, Lord, I pray that you will give us the boldness and the ability to obey your prompting right now. So, Lord, this is our prayer. Father, thank you for forgiving us of our sin. Lord, we now surrender our life to you again. Take everything that we are and everything that we are not. Take everything that we will be and everything that we won't be in the future. I pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to live a victorious life with a bold and powerful witness under the power and control of your Spirit. Now, Father, before we feel a tingle, before we see any evidence, we thank you right now for making good on your word once again. In your name I pray. Amen.